Hello, uh, good evening everybody. Thank you for your patience. Um, it's really great to see so many people here this evening. Sorry that you, uh, a lot of you have to stand at the back. Um, so tonight's event is uh, the second in a series of programs that forms part of the survey of Union Goucher Productions, currently taking place here at Artispace Books and Talks. Um, I hope you've had the chance to see aspects of the exhibition upstairs. Um, and during the regular open opening hours of the exhibition, uh, you can also view the films that you've seen upstairs, downstairs here in the basement cinema, so you can select and view particular films individually. Um, so Union Goucher Productions was founded in the late 1990s by artists Nicholas Guagnini and Karen Schneider, and the survey provides an overview of the films and videos pr produced under this rubric, while also looking to extend the fluid situations and interrelated processes that UGP sought to activate in their production through the specific machine of film. The programs taking place over the course of the two-month exhibition reflect on existing collaborations and generate new ones and develop ideas and influences present within the works upstairs. The program tonight looks towards questions raised at the intersection of filmmaking and ethnography particularly where the assumed objectivity of the analytic documentary form is problematized and distinctions between object and subject break down. We will be screening two seminal documents in relation to this discourse, uh, The Laughing Alligator from 1979 by, by the Chilean video artist Juan Downey and Le Maitre Fou from 1955 by filmmaker and anthropologist Jean Rouche. Um, these two works have provided important keystones in the writing and thinking of anthropologist Michael Talzig. And we're very pleased uh, to have Michael here tonight with us to provide introductions and to expand on his ideas around these films, particularly in relation to what he terms the mimetic faculty and the interweaving concepts of imitation and difference. Uh, so the format of this evening is that Michael will say a few introductory words before each screening, starting with Le Maitre Fou. And then after the screenings, we will, we'll, he will give a talk of around 30 minutes. Um, and there's also an additional section of film thrown in, which I'm sure uh, Mick will introduce, um, of the axe fight by, by Timothy Ash. Um, and the total running time of all the films is around uh, one hour. So uh, Michael Tausig is a professor of anthropology at Columbia University in New York. His most recent book is The Corn Wolf, uh, published this year a collection of his writing that marries storytelling with theory and an analysis with ethnography. His previous books include Beauty and the Beast, Walter Benjamin's Grave, Magic of the State, Mimesis and Alterity, and The Devil and Commodity Fascism in South, in South America, among many others. Um, before I hand over to Michael, I just wanted to um, say a few words of thanks to, to supporters of this exhibition and this program. So a thank you to the Friends of Artist Space who support all our programs, and specifically to um, the Union Goucher um, Productions Exhibition Supporters Circle, uh, which is Miguel Abreu, Bortolami Gallery, and Begum Yusser, Dominic Levy Gallery. So thank you to them, and I'll hand over to Mick. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay at the back? There's still a little bit of room here for, it sounds like you're going to stand for a long time. That was a great introduction, almost as good as my friend Stefan Pasha's about a year ago. 
who's sitting in the front row. And it was very good. Um, Phil, <laughs> I want to thank Nick and Karen uh, for inviting me. I was going to say uh, curating me. Um, and uh, I've decided to curate these films in a particular way. Uh, a very few words about uh, Les Maîtres Fous, uh, which I think uh, are necessary. And then um, maybe a slight pause, and then we're going to go into The Laughing Alligator. But I want to precede uh, The Laughing Alligator with about three minutes of a film uh, by Timothy Ash and uh, Napoleon Chagnon called The Axe Fight, because there's no way you can, I think, get, the, uh, get on board The Laughing Alligator if you don't see this preceding film, which in my opinion is a sort of ghost in the film or uh, a counterpoint to the film. So there'll be three films, uh, two uh, films that last about half an hour, and there'll be three minutes in between the two. And uh, <coughs> I'll, then I'll talk at the end of all of that um, and make some remarks. Uh, <coughs> now, uh, what I wanted to... Um, what I wanted, what I want, wanted, I wanted to say uh, about Maitre Fu... Uh, is the film is made in uh, filming in 1953. It's finished in 1955. The independence of Ghana, which is important to know, is uh, two years later in 1957. Okay, next point. Uh, the uh, uh, film concerns migrants, uh, working class migrants from Niger. Uh, a small uh, republic to the north of Ghana, a small country to the north of Ghana, rather, uh, which uh, uh, form the focus of a... Uh, the migrants form uh, a focus of, a, of a, uh, a cult, we'll call it, the Halka cult, H-U-K-A, it's spelled generally. Now, this Halka cult... Uh, uh, gets together every so often on the outskirts of Accra, and the uh, uh, members uh, become possessed, uh, and, and they become possessed by what? They become possessed uh, by the spirits of dead French colonial officers, and sometimes their wives. There's a particular spirit, uh, the Wicked Major, who's on record in Paul Stoller's uh, pretty extensive ethnography and history of this movement, uh, there's a particular spirit called the Wicked Major who's on record as having uh, beaten up, slapped around, jailed uh, Halka people, hence the name the Wicked Major. Uh, there'll be other uh, spirits. The fascinating thing for me and uh, uh, most of you will be, what does this imply for Europe looking at itself through uh, possessed people? What sort of power is involved? How do you uh, take this uh, uh, into account? Uh, I will um, show the film now and we'll talk about it at length, some of the things that I find interesting and then take questions at, after Laughing Alligator. So could we show the film now? Uh, perhaps a uh, trivial comment is that this uh, film was received with a lot of um, 
uh, anger as well as acclaim when it was shown in, in Paris uh, in '55. Uh, uh, some anthropologists like Marcel Griot walked out saying it was uh, a colonialist, exotic uh, piece of work. Uh, other people like Jean Genet were totally enthralled and went on to write a play called Les Noirs, The Blacks. Uh, so it had this uh, uh, very different sort of impact. Uh, I thought watching it, it might be helpful to think of uh, you or me or us uh, as involved in uh, uh, a ritual as well, not just a normal film-going ritual, uh, not the Hauka ritual per se, but uh, trying to um, uh, understand to some degree the um, passion and energy uh, that's involved in spirit possession, which is, uh, strangely enough, in the West, uh, the West is, seems to be one of the very few uh, populations in, uh, shall we say, modern history, uh, which uh, does not uh, participate in much possession, if at all. So the question is not how do people get possessed or why do they get possessed, but why don't we? Um, second thing is the eating of the dog. Uh, you, you probably distance yourself from that, um, but I'm sort of inviting you to examine your uh, feelings about crossing that divide and um, uh, in that Dionysic spirit of, of pain and joy, as Nietzsche would put it, um, indulge in the uh, breaking of a very severe taboo. Taboo not only to most people here, or not everybody here, uh, but to Hauke as well. And of course, it's the breaking of the taboo that makes you more than, quote unquote, more than a man. Uh, so these, uh, the, these, these are the three um, uh, forces which I think uh, mm, propel you, propel the viewer into a ritualistic sort of uh, trance uh, uh, when watching the movie. The first one is, what does it mean now, not 1955 uh, uh, Paris, or um, but right now, uh, to be involved in a film which um, displays uh, such uh, powerful uh, colonial imagery. Now, that doesn't mean it's colonialist. Right, and this is where people will argue and 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 uh, and uh, so forth. Uh, but one cannot deny the um, uh, sort of very un-PC nature, if I can put it that way, of what is being being shown. I, I remember once showing this uh, in in class, and the students are very cool. I showed it to a bunch of professors uh, about my age ten years ago, and I could see they were very disturbed. Uh, and they were polite, but I could see that they felt this was not really something that uh, they wanted to watch, or they, if they wanted to watch, they didn't feel it was uh, something that could be shown in public. So these are three, if you like, if I can make it less romantic, uh, these are three challenges to a viewer. You can't view such material in a neutral form, killing and eating a dog, becoming possessed, and uh, the... Uh, confrontation or becoming face-to-face -face with, uh, with this uh, strong um, uh, colonialist white-on-black image, Re. I'll talk later about uh, possession, bodily possession, and, uh, and its relationship to making a film. I don't want to do that right now. Um, I wanted to um, move on now to uh, 
talk a little bit about a lesson, uh, uh, John Downey's uh, film. Uh, I'm going to first show a few minutes, as I said, of um, uh, uh, Shagnon and uh, Ashes, Ashes' film, uh, which was made in uh, late 60s. Um, you should remember that Napoleon Shagnon, who was actually taught in my department for a year before he went on to bigger and better things in Michigan, uh, wrote a book called Yanomamo, The Fierce People, uh, in, published in 1968. And by now it's probably sold four million copies. This is including the resales, right? But it, it, uh, it's probably up around four million. There's no book in anthropology which would come anywhere close to sales like that. Uh, that means it was used in colleges, uh, it was a sort of training tool, uh, uh, combined with the film, of course, uh, for countless numbers of uh, young Americans. Uh, it's an uh, unsparing description of, of male aggression. Uh, in, uh, is, uh, is explained by Shagnon in his writings as uh, uh, compelled or caused by men competing for women and thus, and thus increasing their quote-unquote reproductive fitness. So he's a social Darwinist, writes as a social Darwinist, uh, what was called social biology, which had, uh, not, um, up till pretty recently was a very popular form of uh, explaining uh, behavior, especially of so-called um, primitive people. Um, the uh, film I'm going to show you was the most popular film. There were 20 films, 20 films made by Tim Ash of Harvard and, uh, and Shagnon. Um, and uh, the gist of the film is to uh, promote or sustain that image of the Yanomamo as um, super macho and super fierce and so forth. The, um, uh, I won't go too much into the stylistic differences, they should be pretty obvious, uh, but the film in a sense is, uh, is, is a Yanomamo film in the sense that Shagnon uses the word of the fierce people. It's a fierce film. It's a very male film, it's a very male voice, it's a very didactic film. Uh, and the idea is to show chaos, confusion, violence. And then the expert steps in and shows you how the violence can be uh, explained in the first instance, in the first instance, uh, uh, by, uh, by, uh, by uh, showing you a kinship diagram uh, with the different uh, actors' uh, position in that diagram. So you move from a sort of a chaos to an anthropological <laughs> expert uh, explanation in terms of a, a, what is really magic, right? Showing you a, a kinship diagram. So I'm just going to show you the opening shot, few sec, few, uh, yeah, three quarters uh, of a minute, and then I'm going to show you this sort of uh, where everything is brought together and order is restored in the, uh, in the uh, expert's uh, mind. And then we'll move to the laughing alligator, and I think you'll get a, an understanding of some of the background, some of the ideology uh, which uh, uh, the laughing alligator was was made against. Um, so let's show the Shagnon uh, Shagnon Ash piece first. <laughs> What a genius film, huh? 
I thought I'd uh, be fairly pedantic and talk about Demetra Fu first and then Laughing Alligator and uh, b uh, bear with me. Um, I uh, had already mentioned uh, some uh, striking f uh, features to think of uh, watching uh, Le Maitre Fou. Uh, I, I forgot to mention, for those of you who, who don't know uh, Rouge at all, that he's uh, widely considered the, the father of ethnographic film. He was an engineer in the French army in West Africa during the Second World War, liked it a whole lot. Uh, and uh, geared up as a filmmaker and uh, sort of never left. Uh, and he has enormous uh, army of friends in West Africa and made many films. Uh, this seems a very casual, easygoing way in which uh, people he made films with like him, he likes them. And I sometimes get the feeling, say, compared with the Downey film, he, he, uh, he sort of wings it. Um, the Downey film, by contrast, is so... Um, not only so funny, but so incredibly clever and easy at the same time, but super, super smart the way, way it works. Rusha's film, by contrast, it's the, 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 the matter, the information, the, the contents is what I'm looking for, are so striking, and he does a great job filming uh, filming that. Uh, one Downey, uh, Richard mentioned uh, both of these, I think following Nick, uh, both of these are documentaries which uh, in a way uh, document documentary. They contain, a, they contain a sort of auto critique and so on. Well, uh, that's ever so much more in the case of uh, the one Downey film. Uh, it's, it's as if that is the film, that is the matter of the film. Uh, that's why I called my review of it uh, uh, looking and laughing, or a lesson in looking and laughing. Uh, one of the uh, uh, things that are so puzzling about the uh, Shagnon films, uh, Shagnon and Ash films, is um, <laughs> Shagnon comes over as so um, unrepentantly um, hard-ass, tough-minded, um, un-PC, uh, the, the savage is not a noble savage, you know? Whereas if you look at the uh, Downey film, uh, you can't help thinking a lot of the time that that's been simply flipped over. Uh, instead of a, a fierce, fierce people, uh, we've got the, the laughing people, right? And you can see that as a, partly as an antidote to the uh, legend that was being formed. Uh, with the uh, with the Ash Shagnon um, perspective, but uh, it's 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 got it's it's more than that. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting, thinking about my Mises, I'll go into it more later, is how Shagnon is a really a very <laughs> a really tough guy, um, and um, he he's like the second of a huge Catholic family from Upper Michigan, and uh, you get the feeling he's seen life in the raw. Uh, he knows all about, uh, prides himself on his hunting skills and, and uh, I guess, fighting skills. And so it's like that thing, people look like the dog that they have. Anthropologists become like the people they study, you know. And uh, Shapiro, Judith Shapiro, who be became president of Barnard, she worked with the Anamama, and he told her, no way you can go there, you know, you'll be raped, you'll be violated, etc. And I never spoke to her about this, but I think she had a, had a great time without being raped or violated. <laughs> Um, it's, it's as if um, uh, Shagnon projects himself to some extent. But the harder point I want to make is that 
there's a way in which I think Chagnon has a point because the anthropologists fall, o- fall over themselves saying how wonderful uh, primitive people, quote-unquote, are and uh, innocent and the noble savage thing, you know, is very, very strong. But the reality, of course, can't be that, can't be that simple. Uh, and, uh, but Chagnon is not a diplomat and he shoots his mouth off and he then goes an extra mile with his theories of violence as, as, as genetically determined and all this sort of stuff. But I do want to say... Um, it's a very complicated sort of situation. It's also very complicated because there's incredible warfare going on, not simply between the Yanomama, but between the missionaries and the anthropologists, the missionaries and the other missionaries. And the worst warfare probably, and Chagnon is very um, um, outspoken on this, uh, is, the, uh, is the violence between anthropologists accusing each other of uh, you know all sorts of stuff. So <laughs> once you start to get into this swamp of uh, Downey, Shagnon, Yanomamo, oh, I, uh, you know it, it, it's uh, it's unstoppable. There's there's plot behind plot, complexity behind complexity. So if we just withdraw a bit and put Shagnon on the side of the violent van and the Downey uh, film on the side of the laughing people, you know you very quickly have to. Um, move on <laughs> from that sort of uh, simplicity which is dear to our hearts. And we're all, I think, in a sense, uh, colonialist. We all inherit uh, images and feelings about the noble savage and the violent savage and so forth. Perhaps this sort of film will help uh, provide the magic to make that if, uh, not only more complex uh, but uh, more uh, understandable. Now, on the go- some points I wanted to make about the Rouge film... Um, uh, the, uh, uh, I wanted to go back a bit to the origin of the cult of the Hauka. I'm not an expert on this, and I doubt uh, there are. Uh, but one thing that really struck me was the violence that's involved in the French and the British attitude towards the Hauka, uh, which... Rouge, in this charming way, just sort of flies over and glosses over, and it's all a bit of a joke, really, uh, for him. Um, the, uh, the movement began amongst Songhai, S-O-N-G-H-A-Y people in Niger in 1925, and they would dance and become possessed by the spirits of colonial, colonial administrators. It, I want to make a parenthesis. There's a book by the German, very highly respected anthropologist, Fritz Kramer, uh, in English called The Red Fez, and he claims that uh, becoming possessed by the spirit of the other existed in many parts of Africa long, long before uh, colonial uh, endeavours. Well, that's saying a lot. The Portuguese are in West Africa in, what, 1420 or something, 1400 anyway. Uh, but you want to bear this in mind. It's, it didn't grow out of nothing. There's sort of a tradition of, of getting power and value uh, from outside the society, okay? And so that would happen presumably before the colonial powers uh, invaded Africa uh, and maybe it picked up a great head of steam afterwards. But it's, you get the point. Um, they became possessed by spirits of the French uh, major who had first taken the offensive, offensive against them. So this cult is not just a cult. It's seen by the Brits and, this is what, and the French, and this is what's so interesting to me. Um, the colonist gets into the magic too, 
the colonists cannot um, ignore it. There's something uncanny about what these people are doing, and it upsets me, it worries me. This is the sort of thing Fanon would say. And I think Fanon's very pertinent here, because the violence that he talked about that would take over the uh, Algerian peasant and the Algerian lumpen proletariat uh, in response to the French violence is, ex in a way, seen in exactly in this, uh, uh, in this uh, Rouge movie. Rouge doesn't talk about that at all. You know, in a way, Rouge is <laughs> above politics. <coughs> uh, the, the French major, uh, the major, uh, wicked major, we'll call him, who took offence against them, who imprisoned them, and who began, uh, the people who began the movement slapped them around uh, and said there was no such thing as Halka. Uh, thus deified as the wicked major, he, his spirit has got on the very first floor of the Halka pantheon, as one of its most violent spirits. Thus possessed, the Songhai would mimic the white man and sometimes their wives too, and acquire strange powers. Thus the movement spread an intolerable affront, affront to French authority. And I'm quoting from Stoller, an intolerable affront to French authority. That doesn't come out in the movie. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> They took, uh, th thus they took the power of the man who shaped them, shook them around, uh, and uh, the French and the native chiefs, who were complicit with the French, discovered the presence of an open dissidence, I quote, an open dissidence, uh, a society. Could you put that up a little bit, give me a bit more light? Yeah, it's such in your face probably. Uh, <clears throat> An open dissidence, a society, the members of which openly defied the social, political, and religious order. I'm quoting from Stoller. It is here that we discover the most original aspect of the Hauke movement, the total refusal of the system put in place by the French. Um, that's, that's Stoller. Uh, one of the things that Stoller goes on to point to make uh, is that the uh, possessed, uh, the spirit, uh, the possessed person, uh, is, is uh, seen with horror, but also uh, in comedy. And how that exactly works, I can't remember, or he doesn't say. But you know, when Nietzsche talks about the uh, Dionysi Dionysus and so forth, and you read the Bacchae and so forth, you, you see that this mix of opposition, this something can be funny, something can be terrible, terrifying, and that also full of a strange uh, uh, love, that is, that is, of course, desire. This, this um, ungainly mix, this uh, unusual mix, which I think we all understand straight away, intuitively, has to be, has to be recognized uh, in amongst these uh, 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 possessed people as well. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the role of the mimetic in, uh, in the Hauka, and much less so uh, in, uh, in the Laughing Alligator. And I wanted to refer to this uh, essay written in 1933 by uh, Walter Benjamin called On the Mimetic Faculty, which followed on the heels of something similar called The Doctrine of the Similar. And in the opening, it's a three-page essay, three-and-a-quarter-page essay, and in the opening paragraph, um, Benjamin states very flat, very uh, strongly, uh, something that he's been working on, been thinking about probably since he was a small kid, uh, and in more theoretical terms since, I guess, the early 20s. He writes this uh, in 33 uh, on the island of Ibiza. Nature creates similarities. One need only think of mimicry. 
The highest capacity for producing similarities, however, is man's. His gift of seeing resemblances, this is what fascinated Benjamin, seeing resemblances, you know, look, looking at a, a, a stained wall and seeing faces and, and so forth. He claims that this is a way of seeing the world, a capacity for, for relating to reality, which we moderns have lost, right? Uh, so we go from seeing resemblances to a pointed, stronger form, which is we're going to call mimesis, which is the love, the want, the desire, even the capacity to become other. And I quote now, um, his gift, person's gift of seeing resemblances is nothing other, now this is a very leading uh, statement, is nothing other than a rudiment of the powerful comparison in former times. You couldn't write sentences like that now, I don't think. To become and behave like something else. So seeing similarities is, involves an arc in which the viewer becomes that which is uh, being seen, uh, presence, uh, we could say, so as we can include seeing and touching, uh, uh, hearing and touching. Perhaps there is none of his higher functions, man's functions, in which the mimetic faculty does not play a decisive role. This is hugely fighting words, because here's a man who was soaked in the study of language, and every uh, language theorist from Plato on says the mimetic does not play a role. <laughs> in the relationship between signifier and signified, and Benjamin won't have that, okay? He comes out with his ammunition on the mimetic faculty. Now, uh, the mimetic faculty uh, can uh, be uh, uh, an image-based uh, 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 activity uh, in which uh, a photograph, a painting, uh, uh, is a resemblance of, of what it's a copy of, uh, or it can be in, involve some of the physical features, uh, such as uh, uh, part of the part of the body which you wish to influence. If it's a human being, might be their hair, might be their uh, semen, might be uh, their underclothing, and so forth. And the two together, the uh, magic of likeness or the mimesis of likeness, and secondly, the mimesis of contagion or contact or body, often go together in magical amulets. So there's, when I say mimesis, I'm talking about a visual image or something that's like something. Take the photograph, sticking a pin in the face of a person in order to harm them. Uh, or the other type of uh, mimesis, which involves getting something of the body or something that's close and intimate to that other person and then putting it into ritual uh, in order to influence. Now, this is uh, seen as uh, by Horkheimer and Adorno and their Dialectic of Enlightenment as um, something which has been for a long time forbidden in the West or downplayed in the West. It might not be openly prohibited. It might just require less and less uh, steam power or interest or consciousness, okay? Um, now I want to switch back to the, to the possessed uh, s uh, situation of, of the halka, of, of, of the maitre fou. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me in this uh, film is... Um, and it bowls me over, right, as it must you, is not only this interest in getting power uh, by mimicking uh, the European, becoming more than a man, and doubling on that, if you like, 
by committing the tabooed act of eating the dog while possessed. It's like a double whammy, right? So you're possessing the white man and you're also doing the worst thing you can possibly do, eat the dog. Irresistible power flows from that, right? Um, my, uh, my interest was highly uh, uh, focused upon that moment uh, when the egg is cracked on the, on the head of the governor and then the film uh, editor uh, gets out his or her scissors and immediately montages the governor general of Ghana, the queen's representative, stepping out of his car with the yellow and white ostrich plumes. Um, and my, I felt when I have sometimes shown that film, and uh, certainly the first couple of times I showed the film, I, I felt the audience of, when I was in performance studies, the audience of graduate students, it was a sort of, you know, not that loud perhaps. And that's what I call mimetic excess. And this is uh, what I'm getting at. It's suddenly like mimesis crawls out of the screen and envelops you. It's mimesis for the love of it. It's mimesis for the heck of it. It's irresistible. This is not to become a more sane person, those lame things that Rouge says at the end of the movie. Well, you know, look, man, you know, this is a way they can uh, go away for the weekend and come back after being possessed and be a good worker, you know. And who's to say that they haven't got a better system than we have? I mean, I think that's such junk. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, let me put it a little bit differently. Uh, the European can't get possessed, hasn't got a tradition of being possessed. You know, you might disagree with me, or the rave, or you, know, you might say there's something equivalent in the West, but it's nothing like what you saw in the movie, okay. Benjamin, in his mimetic faculty question, says, you know, little kids, they love miming. They play at all sorts of things. Doctors, nurses, mechanics, the windmill. They open a grocery store, you know, all that sort of stuff. In the ancient world of Greece and Rome, a lot of mimicry, a lot of re loving res doc doctrine of the similar, reading the future through the intestines of the guinea pig. You go from the intestines to the future. You go from the intestines when the, the stars, the constellation they were in, when the baby was born. Those sort of resemblances. Okay. But it seems to be all over. It's all disappearing. You know? And he says, has it disappeared? Or will it surface again? Or has it surfaced in other ways? And he says, yeah, it has surfaced. It has always been present in language. And as I said, that's the hardest thing. That's a, that's a really hard philosophical argument. But he had it all there down in art in the age of mechanical reproduction. The movies. The movies pick up on the mimetic faculty. The, he said it a million times. He bored the hell out of you. The images bore into you, or you disappear in the screen. That's one of his favorite tropes, you know. So the mimetic faculty was really alive and well with the movies and the movie maker. So what do we find in Accra in 1953? We find these people who have not lost the capacity to be possessed. And we find the man who can't get possessed himself has got this mimetically capacious machine, i.e. the movie camera. And they come together, boom. The semi-naked body being possessed, 
and the European with the mimetic machine. And they come together right at the point of decolonization, which happens two years later. The British banned the film and said it was an insult to the Queen, and they picked out, according to Rouge, they picked out exactly that scene with the egg <laughs> on top of the Governor-General. Uh, governor that was the scene that they said, this is the, this is the, uh, this is the point of disrespect of uh, regal authority. So this, uh, th this is uh, my uh, favorite thing, I guess, to say. It makes my head move in uh, high velocity, that moment of what I call mimetic excess. Um, I wanted to uh, now move over to uh, Downey. I wanted to say, first of all, as I remember, the film is made in, in the mid-70s. Uh, it's made uh, by Juan Downey, his wife, Mary Lise, uh, and his stepdaughter, uh, Titi, T-I-T-I, uh, who does a lot of the voiceover right at the beginning. And I, 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 I hope I'm not like uh, being overly... Uh, um, boring and professorial if I say it's so amazing to compare the faltering voice, high voice of this teenage girl at the beginning saying, you know, compared with the Shagnon voiceover that you saw at the beginning of the accident. I mean, it's unfair to point it out. It is such a gross difference. But it's one most of us people my age, we lived with the voiceover of the Shagnon people. I think pretty sure that's Shagnon's voice, telling you what to think, telling you what's going on. First off, they draw a map. You can't have a film like that without a map. That's Anglo... Uh, I grew up in Australia. You know, that's Anglo-realism, documentary. Uh, but here in the Downey film, it's a, we're into another world straight away. Now, they spent seven months uh, in this one village that is a long time, I think, uh, to live in such circumstances. Secondly, uh, a revolution was afoot. Uh, the revolution was the portable video camera. Nam June Payak and all his cronies, of whom Downey was one, uh, had this new apparatus. They were going to make movies uh, which could compete with TV. And you could get instant feedback and see what was on the screen. So there's a mimetic element. Uh, in the Downey film too, where he shows people what, what's being filmed. And he ends his film on that point with the deaf-mute, who all were uh, in, uh, meaningless uh, or non-words, uh, croaks and, and cries. And my understanding of that croaks and cries, you might think I'm a bit far-fetched, is that you'll never understand, <laughs> as opposed to the kinship diagram. You can find out a lot of stuff, you can film a lot of stuff, but ultimately it's all a big mystery and a puzzle and the two of you get on okay, you know, most of the time. Uh, but there's also a huge g gap there in understanding and I, that's my understanding of the deaf-mute uh, at the end. Um, I... Uh, Uh, from the a Guide to the Fierce People by Shagnon, quote, the Yanomama prize ferocity among men. Young boys are taught to be fierce and are rewarded when they strike out at others, even adults, end of quote. Shagnon describes several attempts on his life, 
including acts, uh, acts attacks when he was asleep, and Indians shooting an effigy of him shot with arrows for fear he was using bad magic. So at the beginning, when he's saying the anthropologist had warned me, you know, it seems to me such an obvious, obvious reference. And when he's got this standoff with his camera and their bow and arrows, I couldn't help but thinking of Shagnon sort of... Uh, getting the reader to quake in fear that our hero Napoleon, uh, the Indians had made an effigy of him and shot it full of arrows because he was suspected of, uh, of, of having bad magic, which is part of the white man's deal. You know, the Indians have got magic, but we have magic too, according to the Indians. We're pretty good. You see what I mean? On the one hand, you put it down, irrationality and stuff like that, but it's sort of nice if people think you've got magic. Uh, <clears throat> uh, later, the fierceness toned down a little, but also got narrower with his what I call genetic racism using sociobiology, which was a big player uh, in this country in the 80s, uh, 70s, and 80s. Um, Clinton, uh, Shagnon worked with James Neal, a geneticist at the University of Michigan from the late 60s, collecting blood samples from some 60 villages. So he was moving fast, and he visited too many places in his own admission, okay? Uh, to get blood because Neil wanted blood from people who had not been exposed to any atomic radiation after his studies in Japan. And he wanted to get blood which was, in that sense, pure. Uh, a measles epidemic occurred in 1968, and in the year 2000, Patrick Tierney, a sensationalist journalist, produced a book, Darkness Falls on El Dorado, in which he accused Shagnon and Neil of uh, uh, intentionally inflicting uh, measles. Uh, as part of their uh, studies. And this was uh, complete bullshit, uh, but Shagnon was such a great target and so many anthropologists hated him because he was so, you know, I've described him. Uh, everyone was ready to believe it and uh, the, the whole thing was it was a hideous thing. Uh, Margaret Mead sort of tried to put put the fires out, said this is nothing but book burning, referring to the Nazis and so forth. And it's a, so again, uh, the complexity of the situation. The, the Shagnon approach strikes me as awful, uh, but what what these other people did to him is awful too. So a real mess. Uh, and so what we're seeing in Downey's film, I understand as a sort of a, a welcome relief from all that um, missionary hate, missionary hate, anthropologist hate, state representatives, hate, hate, hate. Um, in 2012, Shagnon was elected to the National Science Foundation. Yes, and Marshall Salins uh, resigned in protest. Um, Downey, uh, according to what I read, was involved in filming what I call, or he called an American Odyssey, which would uh, be film work from North America, if not Canada, uh, certainly uh, USA, down through Guatemala, uh, into Chile. A lot of, I remember a lot of silent, black and white, stark, uh, quiet movies. And then he wanted to uh, get involved with uh, with the lowland forest people. Um, I um, 
I always think of this film, and I use this film for teaching writing, not that you can teach writing. This film struck me as the closest I'd ever get to it. I, uh, I, I talk about it as a, f a film which to me brings out the filmic nature of film, and I'm sure people who study film, that's uh, no big uh, discovery. Uh, it's not so much the discovery, it's the way it's done, uh, the impact it has on you to watch this. I, I, I combine that with, I say, many stories are told simultaneously, which is not so easy to do when you're writing. Uh, but if you're a very talented filmmaker, uh, uh, you, can get, you can do it. Um, I, I think of the beginning uh, of his uh, Downey saying, I want, to be, uh, I want to be eaten by cannibals. And he puts himself in the TV box. And there's this amazing sequence of, like, in 30 seconds, so many different things. And, he, and there's some sort of Spanish Harlem voices, let me out of here, let me out of here. And he's looking really intense. And suddenly you see these legs going up and down. And then you see a film shot through a red feather by the chin. It's also beautiful. It's also, it's not, I was going to say bewildering. That's wrong. It's not bewildering at all. <laughs> it's smooth. Right? It's got this ripple action going through it. There's, there's friction there, but it's basically, basically smooth. Uh, so much emphasis on face and body, close-up, right? Even to use these terms is uh, bold and insensitive. I mean, you say, well, there's a lot of face, a lot of body. I mean, you feel it when you see the movie, right? Nowhere more so than when the young man is attaching the blue feather to the arrow and slowly winding the cotton, cotton around it, sitting down there, the body as a vice, the axilla, the armpit as a vice, and the, the arrow becomes part of the body. The blue becomes black, the black becomes blue as it's slowly, slowly twirled. It's an amazing, amazing sequence. Uh, Hammocks sway, bodies move. The canoe slides into and across shadows, nearly always in parts that suggest new holes, always in tight close-ups of the body accompanied by laughter. It is uncanny, bodies so close up you can touch them, you think, and the water ripples along with the laughter rippling. Are they laughing at us? Are they laughing at being filmed? We all remember ourselves laughing like that too, embarrassed by the camera. We see parts instead of holes, reality pivots sideways, yet the past remains linear. Hallucinogenized men crawl on the beaten earth, talking to spirits and each other like perambulating crabs. Oh, now they are upside down, hanging from Mother Earth. How can that be? Oh, it must be the film. That's it, the film. <laughs> Things are taken out of context and put into others. A flower is suddenly interspersed in a shaman's mad dance. A pair of feet drum up and down hard on the dirt after JD's face is displayed trapped in a TV monitor screaming, let me out of here. <clears throat> I had a little note to myself about wit constituting reality. This may be the formula of the film. The canoe slides across and into shadows. The screen fills with the string necklace on the chest of the young man seated in the stern, paddling. 
but he is sideways. Does that sentence make sense? JD's teenage daughter-in-law, Titi, is talking off-screen, off-screen, in a high-pitched adolescent voice, giving us, in a nicely casual, unhurried way, the lowdown on the Yanomami, what daily life is like, how the young men appear to her, how you can't talk <clears throat> to or even look at your mother-in-law, and so on. There is a sense of love and curiosity in her pauses as she moves from idea to idea, as does the camera. It is busy, relaxed but busy. The color palette changes. The canoe keeps moving into a strange realm of sliding surfaces. Now the young man is upright, vertical, is back to vertical, and gravity has been restored. Now the screen fills with the design painted in dark brown on the light brown of his cheek. Now we see an exquisitely carved orange-brown paddle dipping and lifting, dipping and lifting. Now the paddle is being used in a deft motion to bail the water out of the canoe bottom. Now the paddler is bailing with his hands. Meanwhile, the sound of the bailing, the sound of the bailing fills our ears, forming a background to Titi's unscripted description of, the Yanoma, of Yanomami life. It is a sound somewhere between the sonority of a bell and the slurping of a hungry man eating. <laughs> now she is talking about how much she liked her seven months there and would like to go, not come, like to go back and visit. The colors and intensity of light across the shadows on the river keeps subtly changing. Here, storytelling is conducted in many modes simultaneously. The art lies in the combinations, plural, set up at any one instant between speech, ambient sound, and the shifting imagery. All film does this, you say, but not like Downey filming with the Yanomamo, giving us a lesson in laughter and looking. I think I'll finish there, and we, I think, think some of you would like to ask questions. Thank you very much for your attention. Anybody has a question, please put, raise your hand and I'll bring the microphone to you. Nick, hello. Thank you very, very much. Uh, extraordinary to see uh, Le Maître Fou 50 years later. I saw it in 65 uh -huh. in Paris, and it's incredible, you know, 50 years later. How do we, you look at, at this film, at this same film? And, extra then extraordinary, and extraordinary beautiful It's prints. quite different, yeah, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. quite different. Yeah. But I was wondering if you could say a few words um, about what happened to the Hauka cult after independence, over the last 50 yeah, years. I don't know. Uh, uh, Roosh says... Uh, Roosh says uh, uh, there were no Hauka after independence, and there was no Nkrumah Hauka. And he, uh, he, uh, that's what I remember, he leaves it at that. Um, I bet it didn't go away. <laughs> yeah. 
academic. Um, so two things. I remember actually I saw Jean Rouge showing this film in the 90s together with another movie, uh, which was about the, you know, it was film uh, in Paris about the labor, kind of beauty of labor. I don't remember the title of it, but he showed these two films together. And I have notes somewhere um, what he said about them. I'm interested in this moment in the Rouge film where he, they actually, you know, it's the introduction when, before the uh, possession rituals happen, when there is this uh, focus on the men meeting many times in the evenings together and planning it in some kind of way and going off further, um, implying that there is a sense of being outside and inside of the ritual space. Oh yeah. And mm. in a way, um, somehow, I mean, I know we don't have rituals like that, but there is also, I have been in situations in Western society when, when there's a certain group agreement about understanding and trust uh, of a certain situation, that things come up in the social behavior that are very similar to you know, what you might observe as a kind of observer. So I just wondered whether there are certain parallels of the context of the requirements for the ritual to happen that are within that planning zone and within that understanding of what is in and out you know, there are some people that are expelled and some people that belong, and obviously all participants understand their roles. So there, this moment of being possessed is a fraction of, you know, a bigger structure. So in that space, I can understand, you know, there are some parallels in our Western world with that uh, play on that difference and allow these things to coexist somehow, maybe not to that extreme. Sure. Um. This is, uh, this night is turning into living history. <laughs> 1965, 1990. Um, all ritual uh, and theater and acting uh, is based on inside and outside and the action takes place in the middle, in between, right? So you could have it uh, geographically or spatially marked out the center and the periphery, the inside and the outside. Uh, in relationship to the Hauke, uh, specifically, I was thinking, what does it mean for a person of color to imitate a, uh, a person not of, of non-color? What does it mean when the possession involves such um, uh, unusual physical characteristics as rolling the eyes, as, uh, as, uh, as uh, producing enormous amounts of sputum, of walking in a catatonic sort of way with maybe 50%, 90% uh, of your consciousness uh, in another place, right? My understanding uh, of, of, of the possession that I know in Venezuela uh, is that when one is possessed, one is in some sense conscious of oneself, sees oneself from the outside, and so on and so forth. So these uh, these sort of in-between states, uh, I think, I think uh, encompasses what you're, what you're talking about, whether it's of consciousness, but uh, in particular in reference to this film, the politics of it, the aesthetics of it, the physiology of it, if a person of color, his eyes are moving like that, and the camera's working really hard to get those eyes, and that catatonic gait, and the game playing, you know, between the general and the and the wicked major, and so on, uh, something is also involved in your in your uh, question. Um, are they actually imitating 
or how well are they imitating or in what way are they imitating the colonial master because it's obviously an imperfect imitation uh, that can involve or does involve spoofing and poking fun at that which you are imitating and in some sense, as I see it, taking power from. And so that's this question of uh, a differentiation between inside and outside, uh, uh, to me involves this, um, there are different ways you could phrase it, but this flitting between the imitation and the debunking of that which you're imitating. At least that's how I see it. Other people might say, you have to imitate, you become the white person, you become the wicked major, and thereby you take the power. Um, I th there's another element in this. When you look at a film like this, um, how shall I put it? It adds another layer. Uh, it's, it's, uh, um, uh, it's creating its own reality, right? So we have to include that as well. So um, it's not just an in-between state between centre and periphery, inside and outside. It's a movement back and forth uh, and extraordinary... Um, Mm. work, artistic work is being done in gravitating, you know, I put the emphasis on the action uh, uh, th that's involved. So we'd all do that, yes, Elka, yeah, <laughs> you especially. <laughs> um, so, uh, it, you did a really excellent job, I think, sort of looking at the sort of mimetic aspects within the film and then how that sort of translates into the magic of film itself. Um, but I'm interested also in sort of the other, like Fraser's other law of magic, if we're gonna go there, of contagion, um, which I think like we see like moments in within each film of, you know, consumption, um, like of the dog or of the desire to be eaten or to eat the dead. So there are the sort of moments internal to the film of, uh, or to these two films of contagion and this magical operation of contagion. But I'm curious how you see film itself as a medium functioning not just mimetically, but sort of having this sort of aspect of contagion as well. I can't answer it. I mean, you did an excellent job. <laughs> I, I imagine film buffs uh, would have a field day answering your question. They could find example after example. Um, my friend Nancy Goldring is in the fr uh, here, and, and she always uh, uh, wraps me over the knuckles because I'm overly enthusiastic uh, about Benjamin's uh, ideas of the, the body of the viewer goes into the screen, or the images on the screen go into the body of the viewer. And the small child uh, loves coloured pictures, says Benjamin, because the colour is like an invitation to come into the story, and, and so on. So uh, th there's certainly bodily movement, but this is one eccentric, <laughs> crazy thinker. And she says, oh, this, uh, you know, it's interesting, but, uh, you know, it's not all that's going on. Um, I'm looking at my notes on the mimetic in, uh, in Downey. Uh, it, 
They, they, it's nothing like the Maitre Fou, uh, at least on my analysis. It's, it's not nearly as marked, uh, not nearly as visible. The uh, other film that I worked on a bit was Trobrian Cricket. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's, ex it's a pretty amazing film uh, made about the time of decolonization in the 50s in the islands just uh, east of New Guinea, in which there's extraordinary mimicry and dance, uh, and also this mimetic magic. Uh, the, this mimetic excess that I talk about, uh, it's, it's hard, uh, your question, because, I mean, uh, we're looking at a film, we're looking at a, at a photograph, and it's hard to think how a physical uh, object or a physical uh, something uh, could be transmitted with the, um, uh, to the viewer or the viewer to the, um, uh, to the screen. Um, you know, my reading and understanding of certain types of sorcery and witchcraft uh, involve uh, a mysterious uh, movement of thought uh, that goes, uh, let's say, through the air, acts invisibly on the body of uh, the person who, uh, the, what let's call the person the victim, where it uh, uh, will uh, form a physical object which is extracted by a shaman, maybe a splinter or an octopus, uh, a little mouse, uh, all sorts of strange stuff, right? So it's like it starts off as, let's say, something uh, a visual image, meaning basically a thought, maybe attached to a song. I'm thinking of the Putumayo area of uh, the, the upper Amazon in Colombia. I'm thinking of witchcraft that I've read about uh, in, um, in uh, Nigeria uh, as well in the... Um, uh, books by the Bohannans, uh, and um, this, this, there's a movement here between an idea invisibly moving to form a physical s object in the body of the victim, which is taken out by the by the healer. Uh, the Bohannans describe the accumulation of fat uh, around the heart of the sorcerer, uh, which you can find on post mortem. Uh, the Noor, uh, the uh, as Andy described by Evans Pritchard in the 30s, there's witchcraft substance in the body of the of the sorcerer. I, I say sorcerer; these terms we can talk about later. And the relatives can get so upset that somebody, one of their kin, has been accused of being a sorcerer that when that person dies, they'll insist on a post mortem to show that uh, the substance is not there. But of course, the substance can be the appendix, it can be in the liver, it can be in the bile, uh, whatever, and so forth. So that, that's another area, very, of course, very exotic and rarefied and strange. And anthropologists don't talk about these things anymore, where um, something quasi-visual, I imagine, f imagining this is going to happen, uh, and it results in a physical, physical object. But uh, your question's great, and uh, you probably have got some answers. <laughs> They're probably something really obvious that I overlooked. Uh, thanks for your Sorry. Is it on? Um, Tough to start so a question yeah, yeah. like that. <laughs> um, I'm interested in the relationship between art and anthropology or eth ethnography and the role of film in uh, both because film in what we've just seen isn't just recording uh, mimetic, mim uh, mimesis 
coming into being, but it itself also a mimetic faculty. Um, and I remember you did some work on Arnold Mix uh, films, his art pieces. Oh yeah, long yeah. time ago. Long yeah. time ago, and yeah. I was just wondering you whether Dutch? you care to yes <laughs> comment on uh, on these works and maybe the relationship, the difference, or the um, or the uh, parallels between these obviously artistic forms of mimesis and these ethnographic films. Could you, why don't you describe to people a little bit of the, of the work and tell sure. my memory at the same time? Yeah, so <laughs> um, Arnold Mick uh, does staged uh, videos, staged films, where he um, puts actors in a given setting, but there's no um, script or a very loose script. Um, and he just lets kind of, uh, he, he lets the, the events just unfold in front of his camera and thus kind of tries to expose um, rituals that we incorporate without knowing it. Or yeah, very good, yes. yeah. I remember one is a political uh, uh, gathering. Uh, another one is uh, people being taken into uh, some sort of uh, really scary reception center in uh, Yugoslavia or what is about to become ex-Yugoslavia, let's say Serbia, and one group of people act uh, the victims and one group of people act the, uh, you know, the soldiers and so forth. And th it goes on for a long time, right? Maybe an hour, two hours, something like that. Uh, so the question would be, uh, what interest, what would, what would the use of uh, thinking about mimesis add to one's everyday understanding? Yeah, and also the role what that film plays in this, in both the artistic sense, because Arnold Mick's work is, is fiction, but this is, you know, documentary. So I'm just wondering whether you care to comment on the medium. As well. No. Uh -huh. um, see, as was sort of implied in your question, I mean, what interests me in the mimesis is the magical power of the copy. Uh, which remains pretty much unacknowledged. And in these two films, or at least in the, in the Maitre Fou, uh, it, it uh, is super acknowledged. <laughs> Hits you over the head, has to. Not only because people are imitating the, 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 the colonist, but because of the way they're doing it, their possession and so forth. So the exoticism practically drowns you out, you know. Uh, but in the case of um, uh, Arnold Mix, uh, these are, um, uh, that I don't, uh, in a sense, the quote-unquote magic of film is operating all the time, right? But it, it's, not, uh, it's not of the same uh, caliber or intensity for me. Uh, I, that's all I can say, and I'm sorry. Uh, I wanted to, uh, I think there's another question right here. Yeah. I saw uh, Le Maitre Poole in the early 80s and uh, read it completely differently than you did. Uh -huh. I read that Ruch's uh, refusal or abstinence from making political comments opened the space for me to watch the caricature of the colonial masters uh, you know, with, with a tremendous range of response to it, you know, that if he had discoursed on the politics of all that, that, wouldn't, that experience wouldn't be available to me. My horror, my pleasure, 
my, you know, my trying it on, imagining participating in some trance at, at that extreme version. So I was grateful and I read it very politically and a very political choice to not extemporize on, you know, the, the results of colonialism in, the, in Accra, for instance. Mm -hmm. I, I can see that. I, I can see why one would do that. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's a strange politics in uh, that I didn't mention. I, I think in the Downey film, uh, which is a bit far-fetched. You know, there's this uh, there's this anthropologist that the young people like a lot, and the old people like Peter Wilson, uh, Pierre Clast, who have died like all these French intellectuals in a car accident. And he wrote uh, a book called In English Society Against the State and a famous ethnography called The Chronicle of the Guayaquil and so forth. And Clast uh, hung out um, with Jacques Rizot, who was another enemy <laughs> of Chagnon, only to fall foul of anthropological invidia uh, when he was accused of having a harem of young boys, young, young Anamamo boys, and it just goes on. Anyway, class moves from uh, uh, that uh, Yanamamo situation to uh, Paraguay, and uh, he develops this thesis of you know, I was a communist, uh, sort of, and then I became a Levi-Straussian, and, uh, and uh, I'm an anarchist Levi-Straussian, and I watered down Levi-Strauss a bit, you know, I don't hit you over the head with uh, that, uh, all those structures and so forth. And believe me, believe me, the Indians of the Amazon rainforest are like born anarchists, and they have built into their society, not just in their heads, this incredible uh, refusal to let power congeal. So the minute a chief develops, they move upstream. And, but it's, uh, it's something about everything, the way you laugh, the way you walk, <laughs> the way you uh, bury your dead or eat your dead to him that is, um, diffuses power. It's, I, I always get this mixed up, centrifugals, centripetal, centrifugal, centrifugal, not centripetal. Well, um, uh, that's his take on it. I was, uh, I was thinking a lot of, about that in relation to the film. The film seems to me, uh, with the laughter and the, uh, the, the uh, I'll call it anarchic quality of the film form, to in a way parallel long before Klaus wrote his book, this notion of uh, decoagulating de power. The slightest trace of power, you bring in your uh, laughter acid, you know, your, your, your new type of formalism. Um, and in the Shagdon Ash film, the attempt is completely different, completely different. It, it wants to, in my opinion, uh, uh, create a power of the expert, uh, let alone our general understanding in the West that hierarchies are, are in, in, inevitable. Um, it's just a, it's another, another, you brought up the thing of politics and I was thinking of it in relationship to class. Um, so maybe we leave it at there, huh? What do you say? It's been a long night, a lot of people sitting on the ground. So what do you say, Richard? You're the I boss. I think that's a good moment, yes. Yeah, thank, but thank I just want to so say one thing. I, I, I felt I was very impolite when I said that was a great introduction, and I tried to make a joke, but it fell flat. 
and I cursed myself the whole evening because it was a, a beautiful introduction. It's just that he's sitting here. I haven't seen him in years, and he, <laughs> he, he, he really worked hard on a beautiful introduction. So I'm, I'm I, th I think Stefan should redo the introduction now. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Mick. Thank you, and thank you everyone for coming.